Yeah, I don't have any claim to like barbecue lineage. I'm from Chicago, which is a city with its own barbecue traditions, but not a great barbecue city of America. It's saucy. It's real saucy. It's the, it's ribs, and they come swimming in red barbecue sauce. You're listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Huesel, and I'm here with editor in chief Matt Rodbard. On today's show, we have Peter Meehan, former restaurant columnist at the New York Times, cookbook author, and founding editor of Lucky Peach. Later on, we have Julia Sherman, author of Salad for President, talking about the collision of the food world and the art world. But first, Anna, what did you talk about with Peter? Peter told me all about a new cookbook he's working on, all about barbecue. He's been roasting hogs for the past five years as research for this book. And we talked about Lucky Peach, a magazine that I really loved, and it shuttered last year. I think it was a really bittersweet thing for him, and I got to hear a little more about what he's been up to since, since the end of Lucky Peach. Here's Anna talking with Peter Meehan. Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Peter Meehan. Thank you for having me, Anna Heasel. Yeah. It's Hazel. Hazel like weasel. That's what I tell people. Right. I remember because I, of course, hazeled you or hazeled you for a long time. That but happens. Then, You're but not I, the only one. I think it's important to note the hazelness of it. Thank you. So you're working on a book now. How's it going? What can you tell us about it? I'm working on another cookbook and uh, it's going great. Isn't that what you always say at this point? No, it's. It, I mean, it always feels like death to me until you finish a cookbook because I'm not a person with good uh, work habits. Um, then why do you keep writing cookbooks? I don't know how else to support myself. I mean, really, if I could if I could function as like a bar back or a, a waiter, I would maybe try that, but I, I don't have the social skills. So, What is your new cookbook about? It's about barbecue or barbecue and grilling and cooking outside and cooking with fire. So um, and it's, you know, we're, we started to shoot it and I've written a bunch of it, but it's still taking shape. And I got started down the path of it like four or five years ago um, when I started taking my family. I didn't we all went. It wasn't like an abduction um, to a place outside of the city and 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 had access to uh, a place where I could have grill uh, a grill. And then a grill became grills and then grills and smokers. And now I have too much outdoor cooking equipment. Did you decide to write a book about barbecue because you know everything there is to know about barbecue? Or did you want to write the book as like a way of learning about barbecue and figuring out everything there is to know about barbecue? Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, complete and total sets of knowledge are rare and hard to come by. But every cookbook I've ever done has always been an excuse to be curious about something. Um, From books with chefs where you're like, what's that process like? Or how do I make that delicious stew that they make? To like 101 Easy Asian was a a lot of stuff that I had been eating or writing about and cooking at home. And, And I thought instead of trying to remember what I did three years ago, it would be really convenient to have all of those things in a folio. Um, but yeah, the barbecue book is about was about wanting to get better at it, to understand it, to you know. I don't know if this is a thing that you find as a writer, but I find that writing things helps me understand them in a way that reading doesn't always. 
For sure, yeah. And I think just looking at a cookbook from a journalist perspective kind of adds a little value because you're seeing a process or a technique with fresh eyes just the same way that someone cooking at home will be seeing it with fresh eyes. Yeah, I don't have any claim to like barbecue lineage. I'm from Chicago, which is a city with its own barbecue traditions, but not a great barbecue city of America. What's barbecue like in Chicago? It's saucy. It's real saucy. (laughs) It's the, the ribs. It's like it's ribs and they come swimming in red barbecue sauce. In a deep dish pizza. In a in deep a dish pizza covered with yellow mustard and, <laughs> and, and sport peppers. Uh, That's disgusting. No. <laughs> Someone could make a trend food out of that. But again, you know. That's not me. Yeah, I mean, it it is kind of a journalistic exploration of barbecue. It's kind of, I think that there's a lot of regionalism in ideas about what's good or better or best or what you should use. One of the things that the Ugly Delicious barbecue episode kind of talked about, and you were in that episode, just kind of like what is barbecue? Is it just American barbecue? Is Peking duck barbecue? Is barbecue like everything that's cooked over a fire? Do you, like, as you've been writing this book, have you gotten any closer to kind of, like, creating even your own arbitrary parameters? Or, like, what do you consider barbecue? Yeah, I mean, I think that I have focused more on, and I don't know if I like the term or not, but, like, live fire cooking. Like, I'm not really interested in gas grills, even though I know they're more popular than non-gas grills. I'm not super interested in, like, pellet smokers, even though there's a bunch of those like on the market. And and there's great reasons to use both of those things. I've certainly like gotten dinner on the table an hour later because I had to start a fire instead of just turning on my gas grill. But um, but I think that things cooked over fire or coals are the kinds of foods that I'm interested in including in this book and addressing how to cook. I think that in terms of what is barbecue, there's certainly American barbecue is, you know, meat cooked low and slow over coals, and there's regional distinctions about what it is. And the uh, Korean barbecue is grilling, so it's different than American barbecue, but it's also called barbecue because we use words like crazy in this country. You know, there's uh, uh, my friend has, uh, our mutual friend has a newsletter called What's the Difference and recently addressed the difference between a lake and a pond mm-hmm. and the factual scientific difference is that there is no difference. You can use it's whatever word. Yeah. Whatever you need to like sell that property in the country, it's called a lake or a pond. So, so I don't know that like the nomenclature dispute, which I think is a kind of a trope of barbecue commentary is as interesting and uh, as honing in on the, the cooking styles and then trying to kind of reason out and explain how they work so that people have a, a greater chance of success when they try it at home. For sure. I would imagine that barbecue is a difficult thing to write a cookbook about because it's so much about techniques and the types of fire that you're cooking with. Is it hard to translate that into recipes? Y- yes. I mean, I think it is. I think it's about yes and no. I mean, the the food can often be very simple, so that's good. It's not a ton of knife work or, you know, uh, a pickup that has six components for 99% of the stuff that's going in this book. But I think that finding the language to describe fire and heat and what they do to meat mainly, I mean, vegetables somewhat, 
and and how to understand those things and and hopefully like I, I I you know I'm not done with it yet but if I can write it in a way that people understand what their grill or smoker is doing and what they are attempting to achieve in that cooking method gives them the greatest chance of control because the other thing is that you know if you test a recipe and you say cook it in a 12 inch cast iron skillet then you over medium heat then you can assume that everyone will actually use a nonstick skillet over low heat and write about it on Yelp and some you know switch out all the ingredients but there's no standard kind of cooker that's available everywhere and so i think it's really about addressing the approach to heat and cooking and trying to find language that makes that accessible and understandable to people. So did you travel much for the book? And also just what was, what were the really exciting things that you got to learn how to cook for this? I mean, I think the core American barbecue things, you know, spare ribs, baby back ribs, uh, like te- Texas style brisket and whole hog are things that I know that four years ago I couldn't cook as well as I can now. Now, you know, I've started to like cook pigs in the city when friends have like charity events because I know how to do it and it's fun and and we can make delicious pig. But it wasn't, you know, a straight line between like read a recipe and do it. It involved traveling around. I got to go visit Sam Jones and cook with him when he was up at the Big Apple Barbecue. He has Skylight Inn and Sam Jones Barbecue down in Aden, North Carolina and makes the finest whole hog barbecue in the land. And that was an amazing experience. I got to go see... Went down to Austin and ate around there. And Franklin Barbecue is so amazing. And his brisket is, you know, is, each brisket is touched by God him, herself. And um, uh, But Tom Micklewaite uh, has Micklewaite Craft Meats, which is like right up the road from Franklin. I think is like the best all-around barbecue restaurant in the Austin area. Um, and so I went down. I, I, I've known Tom for a few years. And when I was down, I shot a scene with for the television show with him, and I noticed that he had a smoker for sale in the corner of his parking lot. And it was the smoker he had started his business with. And we may have drunk a few beers while shooting the scene, and once the cameras turned off, I uh, bought the smoker, and he drove it up to New Hampshire for a wedding he was catering and then dropped it off at my place outside of the city, and we spent two days cooking together up there. And that was like a really... Amazing. He taught us how to make, you know, barbecue sausage. And that was like uh, a really great time and got to like feed 70 people. So so it's been good. And then I, you know, just in like in terms of international stuff, I've always, you know, had an affection for Japan. I've been there a few times. So I went over to like interview and spend some time with some yakitori chefs to just learn more about that because I'd made yakitori at home and it was okay, but it wasn't as good. Um, And I went to Thailand just because I associate Thai food with a lot of like charred, deep flavors, and I wanted to see that myself, and and got to stay with Andy Ricker up in Chiang Mai for six days, and 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 those were great. And if I had all the time in the world, I would keep traveling and going. But I don't know how much more there will be before the the book is done. Did you have a good time doing TV? I mean, you were on a lot of the first season of Ugly Delicious. Is it something you'll do again? Do you think will there be a Peter Meehan barbecue show? I don't. Point. I don't think America wants that. Um, <laughs> you don't no, know what America. I don't. I really don't know what America wants. It's so true. I mean, I'm really confused when they want certain <laughs> things that they've wanted lately. Um, I don't know. TV always terrifies me, but I think making that most recent show, while there were some difficulties uh, around it, um, 
ended up being fun and uh, wasn't that embarrassing. You know, I kind of got my grounding in barbecue almost 20 years ago when I was a production assistant on Stephen Reichland's Barbecue University television show for two seasons. I did not know that that was part of your career. Yeah, that was I, I worked on that. And uh, and so I spent like two weeks in West Virginia taping the show every summer and and learning a, a ton about barbecue while helping to produce that show. So that was like my first TV gig and my uh, introduction to barbecue. And I think that there could be, I don't know if everybody makes TV now. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I like that the parameter is not that embarrassing at the that, end of the that's, day. That's good. That was a big that's... achievement for me because uh, <laughs> uh, uh, previously I've I've avoided cameras. Like I, I was never in my high school yearbook. And wow. it was like when I did the Times job, it was really easy to be anonymous because there were like no – I just never let pictures take uh, – anyone take pictures of me. Yeah, and that was part of the job, right? They, and that was right. reviewing were, restaurants. Right, from 2004 to 2008. Um and and now, you know, I've worked with this photographer, Gabriele Stable, who we started with the Momfuku book, and he shot everything I've done since then, I think. And and I was he was sending me some pictures of my kids he had taken, and I needed a headshot. I'm like, do you have any pictures of me that I won't hate? And And it turns out that because I'm so camera shy or camera aggressive, I had flipped him off in every photo he had taken of me <laughs> for like nine years. And And I think that was also a lesson to myself that like, camera shyness can you could just work through it instead of ruining what could be a lovely trove of uh, photos that my daughters could enjoy when I'm dead um, is your author photo just going to be a montage of like a hundred photos of, of, of you me, giving the yeah, finger on different continents yeah <laughs> um, so are there are all of the restaurants that you reviewed back when you were at the Times closed now I mean that was like 10 years ago right that was 10 years ago no are any still, of them still around I Roberta's is still open um and I remember going to Roberta's like to go see shows out in Bushwick in 2000 I don't even know when that was and like you could walk into Roberta's with 12 people and it was like no problem sit right down and eat um so, so you're basically to blame for how hard it is to get into Roberta's no now. then I think Bruni reviewed it after me and I think that really you know brought the f- and they make such delicious food and it's a good time to hang out there and I, so they are to blame for the <laughs> difficulty of going there um no there's I think Gazala's place is still open on Ninth Avenue there's still spots around but certainly lots have closed since then yeah um i personally really miss lucky peach i don't know how you feel about it it's i think is will go down in history as like the grossest weirdest funniest (laughs) most pure-hearted food magazine probably ever do you miss editing it are you like relieved to kind of be doing other things do you have anxiety dreams about the files getting to the printer on time? I do not have anxiety dreams about the files getting to the printer on time. I did have deep anxiety. You know, we closes were always uh, hairy there. Uh, Late nights. Yeah. No, I mean, I I miss it for a lot of reasons. But with the distance, I mean, I guess it's been a year since we closed the office and almost a year since the last issue um, it's funny when people are like that. That magazine was weird or crazy. I'm like, it wasn't weird or crazy. And then I'll open an issue, and I'm like, oh right, we did that because that seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was it was the right thing to do at the right time. I think when we started it, I felt like food media 
was extremely staid. You know, there were a few small experimental journals around happening and and I wanted to go in that direction. And then in the six-year run that it had, like, food media completely changed. Um, and it expanded and it got weirder and it got more diverse. And and the the challenge of keeping it vital was was always uh, uh, a stress. And, and I feel like, yeah, like not having to run that magazine during the current media climate, like during the current political climate in this country is somewhat of a relief, but I'm also unemployed and I don't have enough to do with my days. So I do miss having a place to go and, you know, try to figure things out with people. Right. What were you reacting to in food media when when Lucky Beach started? Like, what were food magazines like then? I mean, I think I was um, an ungrateful punk, and I'm not using that in the, the music sense of punk. I was just a jerk who didn't appreciate how good I had had it at that point. And I'm like, why don't people want to run long stories about esoteric topics? And why aren't people interested in the inner workings of whether it's like a, you know, a chef's dynamic or like what Chinese delivery guys do? Like there were always story ideas or concepts that I would have or people I know would have and you couldn't get it pitched. And, you you know, and instead you, you would write something smaller or more service oriented. And, and I wanted something that was woolier and weirder and at the same time like that was back when I like cursed a lot in writing um which now as a you know a dad I try not to do though they do slip in there um and and it just felt like there was an opportunity for the kind of conversations that were happening around kitchens and between food people that weren't showing up in print the thing in print was always pretty and aspirational and lifestyle and the the real lifestyle around food was different and weirder and more transgressive. And and I wanted to make a magazine that showed that. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know so many chefs who loved reading Lucky Peach because it kind of represented the uglier parts of of the food world, like the the gross parts, like the parts that are a little bit grittier, that are a little bit more difficult. And just it represented something that was a little more real in that in that sense. Yeah, and I think it was, you know, it was an opportunity. I remember I got Fuchsia Dunlop to do something for the magazine, and that was hugely exciting to me because I'm a huge fan of her work. And we we met for lunch, which was cool. You know, got to meet Fuchsia Dunlop. And then parting words from her were like, you know, I can't do a British accent, so I won't. Um, But she's like, I have some frozen stag pizzles at my house, and I'm trying to figure out a story to do with them. And I'm like, I don't want to be the magazine that you call when you want to write about cooking dick. And then we decided to do <laughs> And this then you became that magazine. Issue, and, I, and I got to write an email and it would be like, about those dicks in your freezer. And she wrote this piece that no one else would have published, but it's like brilliant, exuberant writing and it's informative and it's you know, like there's cultural context like all over the place in it. Um, and I think it was just fun to do. So it was fun to be a home for people to do that. It was fun to try to change the magazine and the business over the course of the years that it was around and move it towards you know, like put it on the web and and try to make it more service oriented and do those cookbooks and everything. I mean, it it was great challenges and fun all the way through. But at the same time, I do believe that, you know, it died and it's got a good, if strangely malformed corpse and, and I'm happy with it where it's at. Well, I can't wait to hear about what else you do and also to read the barbecue book when it's out. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for coming.
Here's Matt and Julia Sherman live at Books Are Magic. Let's sit down. All right. So where do you start? Like, how does how does that happen? It's like a lot of us here, I think, in this audience, like when we're trying to make a salad, we're trying to eat healthy and eat a salad. And we're like, how do you start in like the bodega? Yeah. All, you know, many of us live in Brooklyn where we don't have large grocery stores. I mean, it really for me is about encountering something I don't know and trying to figure out how to use it. So, yeah. I mean, I learned to cook just by cooking. I, I can't, I don't have some like fascinating origin story of like, I grew up in my mother's kitchen. You could make it up though. And we my grandmother's here, right here. And I, I love you, but you definitely didn't teach me how to cook. <laughs> so, uh, uh-huh. unless it was like latkes, which are which not else? in the book. Um, but yeah, so I think, you know, for me it was, it was a lot of just, I'm a very curious person. And I think, um, I've always taken the notion of being an artist as like your your job is to be curious and to make everybody else curious and that's that's essentially why you exist you know to mm-hmm. to get people to ask questions. So for me I just encounter something I don't know and I'm not embarrassed to admit I don't know it yeah. and then I take it home and I play with it and maybe mm-hmm. it works out or maybe it doesn't and then I do it again and again until it works. I mean out. should we start with a certain base? Like can we go there like is there like a better lettuce to start with that you prefer? Oh. I mean I uh, well I don't believe that salads have to have a lettuce base. Of course. Yeah. These are but, my probing um, questions you're getting at. No, I mean, it, you know, it's very, it's been said a million times, but I do think if you start with good ingredients, you will be motivated to treat them well. Okay. And I, I don't know. I think, you know, yeah, of course, a lot of us have to make dinner from the bodega yeah. uh, many nights a week. We don't get to go to the farmer's market every day. But, um, yeah, I think if you if you really commit and you invest in good ingredients, then you feel too guilty to not use them and to not, you know, do them justice. I like so. That. so let's switch gears. In 2014, you launched a salad garden on the roof of MoMA PS1. I did, yeah. So two things, like what is a salad garden and <laughs> what the fuck was that all about? Because that sounds like an amazing project. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. It's really cool. Well, so, I mean, working at museums is really great. But it has a lot of challenges. Um, museums tend to have more lawyers than they do curators. So, and I don't really jive well with lawyers. What I loved about the salad garden is that it was like a really innocuous proposal. Let's make a garden on your roof that's open to the public and anybody so you can come. Them out. on the idea. Well, in P- at PS One, it was sort of when I first started my blog, and a friend of mine was a curator there, and she said to me, "Hey, you know, we have this amazing roof, and if for those of you who have been to the roof of PS One, it has these incredible sweeping views of the city." And um, I made a proposal to make a salad garden there, which would basically just be a crazy collection of rare rare herbs and lettuces. And just uh, the idea would be that you would come and you would taste everything and that you had never experienced before. For a lot of people, they spend the whole day in the museum and maybe they're left with the feeling like they didn't get it. And then they get to the roof and they're like, I get this. Like I can, I can taste these things and I can smell these things and I'm learning something and I'm taking something with me. And it's like, for me, it felt like that was kind of an ideal museum experience. Were you preparing salad on the roof? Were you doing events? Yeah. How so did that work? I just basically decided that instead of making salads at people's home for the summer, uh, I would invite artists to the roof of PS1 and they would get to make, they would get a list the week before of everything that was growing and we'd come up with a recipe oh, cool. and they'd show up and they'd bring whatever extra materials they wanted to create their salad. And then because it was 
they, we, there were nights where we would just be left there and the security guard would go and we'd be like the last people in the museum because nobody realized we were up there. But, you know, you'd, we'd have these like little dinner parties that oh, were cool. informal and with these incredible views. And well, we'll move on. But you when we were talking earlier about your experience at PS1, you talked about your dirt delivery. <laughs> that sounded kind of insane to talk about that. I don't know if anyone else in the audience is like addicted to proposals, but I will just write proposals like without even thinking if I really want the commission. So I wrote this proposal and I was like, yeah, I'm going to build this huge garden. It's going to start tomorrow because it was like the end of May. And so, you know, it was time to plant. And when the project was got a green light. I realized that I was only one person and I couldn't possibly pull this off by myself. But I scheduled a dirt delivery and I got the dirt donated and I was like waiting at the freight elevator and a dump truck came and dumped a mountain of dirt. So not and in the bags. Like the visual usually is like... No, we're talking about like a whole rooftop garden. So this is like... And I'm not... It's, this isn't like hyperbolic. This is a mountain like much taller than me. So I just started like shoveling it like one load at a time, Mm -hmm. taking it in the freight elevator up and like wearing overalls and the preparators are just like, you're so pathetic. So after 62 emails, Mm -hmm. you ended up finally meeting Laurie Anderson, the artist. And you guys talked about Brian Eno. You talked about Benedictine nuns. We did. And then you ended up talking about salad. So I want to know, and this is a, a large section of the book and there's many of these with many different artists. So tell me, how do you transition between these worlds, talking about Eno and then talking about, you know, watermelon radishes? I mean, it's different every time. I think there's, with someone like Laurie Anderson, there's like this small generational gap where food is really a very different thing for people of our generation than it is for for people, um, you know, previous generation where food was sustenance and i mean she's she's a flux i mean she's no friends with fluxus artists and she's not unfamiliar with food becoming part of people's art practice for sure and lou but, reed was quite the food right foodie food fan. right and they went you know they went to food the restaurant in soho like yeah. it wasn't a totally new idea but um i think the amount of tension that a lot of us pay to food is a little bit of you know a little bit curious but i think um it's kind of the elephant in the yeah. room because yeah. for a lot of these people that are just like, why is this girl so obsessed with salad? Like, I understand if she wants to interview me, she wants to photograph my home. Like, where is it? Why salad? You know, so it doesn't it, it presents itself because they're already implicated in it. So they usually want to get to the root of it before they like see it published. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, I, I mean, the conversation is usually about process and. I don't think it's actually that foreign to say, mm. well, my process like led me to the thing that felt good. Okay. You know? William Wegman, for example, what was the process like there? Well, so William Wegman doesn't really like salad. Yeah, his recipe is for... Um, Herosets. Herosets. Which is kind of my recipe. So but kind that's, a, that's the only the one I outed my editors reveal. right here. And I was like, we're not going to tell anyone. And now I'm like, everybody, it's mine. <laughs> but no, he, um, I love William Which Wegman. is, explain Herosit <laughs> first for anyone who's oh, not, sorry, a, not yeah. of the Jewish. Herosit is uh, the best thing on the Seder plate. So yeah. it's like a, it's, no. it's, I consider it a salad. I don't think the... Jewish community, whatever, call it a salad, but it's a uh, chopped nuts and apple, and it's soaked in wine. 
but you you generally eat it on matzah, which is not that delicious. So ours we put on bread. But oh, one man. thing that was really funny is I assume William Wegman was Jewish for some reason, and I was like, I never told you that. I was like, just like let's make Harosit because she. Had I think said, everyone assumes he's Jewish after reading the Harosit. I know happened. he's okay with that because he played on a Jewish hockey team, so he was like <laughs> already very comfortable with the idea. But um, he. Yeah, so I had contacted them. Uh, Christine Bergen, his wife, is an incredible um, curator and publisher as well. And um, I'd contacted them because he had sort of been a figure in my life since childhood. Um, I was very seriously addicted to his Sesame Street segments. If you haven't seen it, you need to Google it. And so... Uh, this was a case where I was like, all right, you don't like salad, but let's expand our notion of salad. And so we worked through it, and I was like, what if it had no vegetables? Okay, and he was game for that one. And then I was like, I really want to put a Hiroset recipe in the book. And he was like, yeah, okay. So we all right. we worked that through, but he's definitely not a cook. Let's think of one more. Um, <laughs> Claire Evans from Yacht. Yeah. It's an interesting one. Talk about the, that recipe that you came up with. That recipe was one where I was sure it was going to be disgusting, and I was really nervous because she was so... She's vegan. For you guys that don't know, Claire Evans is... um, She runs Motherboard, which is Vice's technology website, and she's an author, and she's also the front woman of a band called Yacht. She's totally amazing. I would love to see that. It was like a kind of a little hidden treasure there. Yeah, and she had this dressing... I think vegans are forced to be really creative Mm -hmm. because they're constantly worried that they're not going to get food. Like, that's their sort of just like, where's an egg? Like, it's kind of, it's an anxiety that like, so they're always thinking, they're always thinking. And like, I'm really obsessed with food, but they're taking it to the next level. So when she told me she had this dressing and I was sure it was going to be terrible, but it was coconut oil, yuzu koshu, which is like a chili citrus, um, condiment japanese condiment um and some soy sauce some uh rice wine vinegar whatever but um uh, when i got there and in my head i was like this is probably not going to make it into the book uh but i had but she was so confident because some artists are also just like really if they know what they want to do you really don't want to get in the way and they sell it hard too right yeah that's a good thing about artists yeah. like they sell it pretty pretty so i was fully like i was also just not about to tell she's such a rock star so i was just like well we'll just do this for you but it's not gonna make it to the book and then the 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 something like amazing happens with the coconut oil where you get it to room temperature and then once you toss it with the greens it solidifies like in a thin coat around the greens which maybe sounds gross, but it is amazing. And you can really throw on anything. It seems like a pretty like go-to condiment. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the things in the book that I feel like the photo doesn't do it justice because it kind of just looks like a green salad, but it is super special. Let's talk about photos a little bit. Your photography in the book, you you shot everything, right? Yeah. So what is your approach to photography when you're when you were looking at this this project? I mean, it's not like soft focus. It's not like all studio. It's a lot of reportage. You're traveling. Mm-hmm. Just talk a little bit about that, because I think it's a really nice part of the book. Yeah, I guess um, I'm really excited to do my next book, because <laughs> I feel like up until the moment I saw this all together, I had no idea how all the pieces would would actually flow, because felt like there were so many disparate pieces. So there, I knew that um, I really try not to control the situation when I'm shooting with an artist, so I never want them to feel like we're in a photo shoot. So that means that sometimes I don't get what I think could probably be a better shot, but I don't want to overstyle their food. I don't want to tell them to pose. So I'm kind of like sneaking the photos. Um, 
And I knew that when I was shooting the imagery that were, you know, that were my own recipes, I wanted them to be in a really stark contrast to that. And I think I looked at a lot of cookbooks in the process of making this book and sort of thinking about creative direction. And I knew that I felt very fatigued by the like vintage nostalgia, soft focus, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned. Circle plates. Right. Circle plate, circle plate. Uh-huh. And like, you know, tattered. Oh, oh, the other thing was like food styling. Lauren, also working on the food styling for the book, um, assisting Rebecca Jerkovich. And she, we talked a lot about, I was like, I don't want to see any scattered herbs or like mm-hmm. accidental strayed ingredients or like, but you know But artfully placed across the it. placemat. Yeah, It drives me insane because I'm like, we all know you're in a studio and somebody put that freaking thing off the plate for mm-hmm. no to make yeah. it seem like everything's relaxed but it's not <laughs> relaxed you're at no. a photo shoot you shot 10 things that day and it's just not it doesn't it's not convincing so when when my editor holly looked at all the uh photos she was like you have no utensils in this book and i was like well i didn't want to make it seem like we were like just finished plating or like we're about to have a meal because we're not we're like in a studio and I'm freaking out and everything is like totally falling apart so I really wanted everything to be kind of this studio really graphic really clean look and part of that was so that it would just have a really it would take a separate space from the the reportage yeah. yeah you make several cases in the book um, why it's like essential to buy a salad spinner. <laughs> Can you explain why everyone should buy one? Because I'm dubious, but you really? may... What? I don't know. I, I have a small well, I kitchen. Have a, I have a, a, um, a layman salad spinner and I have an industrial salad spinner. For those of you who know what industrial salad spinner looks like, it's like safety orange and it has a spout on the bottom. It's like I don't know, eight gallons or something, and you use a hand crank. I once did an event called Spin the Salad where you had to kiss the person who the salad oh, and the not that's another thing. But I lo- that's, not, that's not the only reason why <laughs> I love the salad spinner. But um, I think a wet salad is a bad salad, and most people don't have the patience to wash their greens and then hand dry them properly. Shake, shake, shake put the yeah, that's like it. all very lovely if you have like all morning to prepare your salad. Um, and I think, and if you're going to do it right, but I think if there's like one thing, if you're if you make a dressing and then you put it on wet salad, it's not going to be good. And that's mm-hmm. just I don't know, like do yourself a favor. It's like and twenty so bucks. The the wet salad um, that affects the the dressing, right? Yeah. What, what does that greens. do to the dressing? Okay. Well, it dilutes the dressing. Yeah. So the dressing won't adhere to the greens. So it'll That's kind right. of just pool at the bottom. Um, I love that you're like nodding like you're going to make a salad. You're not going to make a salad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'll, it'll pool to the bottom. And then also greens are really delicate. So you have to treat them really kindly. So if they, if they're too wet, I mean, yeah, if they're too wet, they're going to, you know, get damaged. It's bad. So one of your chapters is called Fuck Brunch, mm. which is not about salad, but you must really <laughs> hate brunch But the, to name this a chapter in his salad book. Yeah. Explain why you do not like brunch. Well, well, I don't like eating out that much, which is not a popular opinion, to, you know, a stance to take in New York. But I think like 
I don't know. It's Sunday. You have way more time than you normally do. I just feel like it's such a good time to be creative in the kitchen and to make something for yourself, especially when there's so many really simple options, things you can eat in the daytime for brunch that are really executable and you can do them really well. So I feel like it's a missed opportunity. And I hate the idea that people really like, they accept subpar food for brunch, which like you'll have like, crappy mimosas Mm -hmm. and like I don't know just like bad food and you'll wait in line for it like I won't wait in line for anything Mm -hmm. but like brunch I just feel like in that time you could make so many eggs you can make like you could have all your friends over twice you could have so many bottles of Prosecco so to clarify (laughs) you're not fucked brunch in general but it's fuck brunch uh, on culture, smith street yeah the culture like of brunch yeah i guess i guess it's just there were so many years where people were asking like do we want to go to brunch and i was like oh like no i don't so hands i hands who shares this opinion hands in the audience who shares this opinion all right not so that a quarter of the audience right. wow i, I i'm so also i'm out. also into people doing whatever makes them happy and for my friends who own restaurants i'm really happy that people pay a lot of money for brunch i really am because i, I don't i don't intend to invite them all over to my house but um you're I obviously love, you're selling books at the end of this obviously right 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 yeah but i know i love i love i do love making brunch and i think like for me it's one of the most fun meals to cook yourself and it's really accessible and i think it's a it's a it's a great place to start. Well, let's uh, maybe sign some books, sure. eat some more salad. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. It. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hazel. It's produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Our theme music is by Steve Raydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. Special thanks to the Books Are Magic family, Emma, Mike, and Michael. Confidence wine supplied by Smith & Wine. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>